1: What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone.
0: The What Podcast with Brad Barry Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami.
1: Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga times free Press, covering all
0: aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born.
1: Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. I'm also really good at identifying babies
0: Consequence Podcast Network. I've always been obsessed with music. Like, really obsessed. I used to have over a thousand CDs stacked up all over my bedroom. Remember CDs? No, I'm old. Anyway, I was really lucky to grow up with parents who had excellent taste in music. They listened to all kinds of stuff Aretha Franklin, Stevie Wonder, James Taylor and Bonnie Raitt, The Beatles, The Stones. The list felt endless to me, and there was always music around me, and I loved it. I absorbed every bit of it, and it gave me this incredible foundation for building my own taste. But I never really had any rock music to call my own until grunge exploded in late 1991. This is a podcast where we explore iconic albums to celebrate their ongoing legacy, history, and how the music continues to evolve. Sounds fun, right? I'm your brand spanking new host, Adam Unz. Very exciting to say that. In this season of The Opus, we are going to focus on Alice in Chains' seminal, era-defining album, Dirt, as it reaches the 30th anniversary of its release. And in this first episode, we're looking at Alice in Chains' place in the burgeoning grunge scene, how they defied that categorization, and how they adhered to it. For the Consequence Podcast Network and Sony Legacy, I'm Adam Onnes, and this is The Opus. There was this really dramatic shift in the American album charts between 1990 and 1991. If you look at the top-selling albums of 1990, it's dominated by some really incredible pop music. Madonna released the Immaculate Collection. Uh, Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston sold millions of albums. So did New Kids on the Block. And so did The Three Tenors. So I guess there's always room for a few curveballs there. But if you look at the top-selling albums in 1991 there's a big shift towards rock albums. You got Metallica and Guns N' Roses and U2 and, most notably, at least when it comes to this season of The Opus, Nirvana released Nevermind and Pearl Jam released 10. So suddenly, the entire music industry was laser-focused on Seattle, and as a kid who was beginning to assert his musical independence, so was I, and I wasn't alone. Musician, singer, and songwriter Dallas Green from City and Colour and Alexis on Fire had a pretty similar experience.
2: I really liked music a lot when I was a kid. I I noticed myself really liking music, right? Like Guns N' Roses and Def Leppard, and just like I was in Canada, so I was watching much music a lot, or I was hanging with my older sister, watching music videos or listening to to records with her, and she was kind of like you know shepherding me as a, as her younger brother into like like she sent me to sixth, sixth grade class wearing a clash t-shirt you know she's like go to you know wear this t-shirt I'm like great but so when grunge happened I was at that perfect age you know what I mean like I'd been listening to music I'd been really kind of noticing that it was hitting me a little bit more and then when grunge happened I was just like holy fuck this is my music
0: Nothing had ever really spoken to me in the way all of these exciting new Seattle bands did, and I listened to their albums nonstop. And when I heard there was a movie about the grunge scene called Singles coming out in the autumn of 1992, I was so excited. Seattle seemed like the coolest city in the world to me. And then I found out that a bunch of grunge bands I loved were in the movie. My angsty little tween heart started racing just thinking about seeing the movie, but then the soundtrack dropped a few months before the movie came out, and can you imagine how much I freaked out when my older sister bought it? I had to wait my turn to listen to it, which was extremely annoying, but I waited, and while I waited, I rubbed my little hands together with glee looking through that track list. Pearl Jam was there, Screaming Trees, Sound Garden. But when I finally got to play it for the first time, my tiny little mind was blown by the very first track. It was called Wood by Alice in Chains. That song, Wood, and that was W-O-U-L-D, mark by the way, was written specifically for the single soundtrack. It was a tribute to Mother Love Bone frontman Andrew Wood, which is W-O-O-D, just so we're clear. Andrew Wood died from a heroin overdose, and it was this event that united the whole Seattle music community in grief, and it also eventually paved the way for the formation of Pearl Jam. I listened to the whole single soundtrack, and I loved every second of it, but that opening song stuck with me in a way that the other songs didn't. It opened with this rumble of bass, and it was dark and hard, and it had this, I don't know, weight that the rest of the songs didn't. And it had these perfect kind of haunting vocal harmonies, and that was really unusual for a grunge song. And then, Lane Staley's voice on the chorus, whew, it just ate into me. And even though it stood out by a mile to my impressionable ears, it didn't feel out of place. It sat alongside the brighter, lighter songs like Pearl Jam's State of Love and Trust and Nearly Lost You by Screaming Trees as a perfect companion piece. They were different branches of the same musical family tree. Wood and Alice in Chains were both on the edge of the single soundtrack and at the sonic heart of the album at the same time. And that's the relationship Alice in Chains would always have with the grunge scene. Outsiders who never quite adhered to the Seattle sound, simultaneously sitting at the epicenter of that globe conquering musical tidal wave. That song, Wood, embedded itself in my brain and served as my first taste and actually the world's first taste of Dirt. An album that would come to define Alice in Chains' career and cement their legacy as one of the most influential rock bands of the 90s. want to harp on about the single soundtrack too much here, but it did play a really crucial role in both the development of the grunge scene and of the Dirt album. In fact... As part of the agreement they made with Cameron Crowe to appear in the film and on its soundtrack, Allison Chains convinced him to put up enough money not just to record wood, but also for sessions that would produce demos for quite a few of the songs that eventually appeared on Dirt. The film and the soundtrack were recorded at a time when all of these legendary Seattle bands were on the verge of achieving superstardom, and the world around them was beginning to gather them all under this grunge umbrella. Singles wasn't necessarily an accurate portrayal of the grunge scene, it mostly focused on the romantic lives of two couples, and only one of those characters was a kind of grunge-esque musician, but Singles did a great job of highlighting how much was going on musically in Seattle. So many amazing bands were breaking all at the same time. I mean, my favorite example of it is one of the most amazing, exciting coincidences in grunge history. So the night that Alice in Chains filmed the performance of Wood that would appear in singles, that was the same night that Nirvana performed Smells Like Teen Spirit in front of a crowd for the first time ever at a nearby venue called the OK Hotel. Isn't that wild? So, you know. Alice in Chains was right at the center of all of that excitement, but at that time when they were being lumped together with every band in a 50-mile radius of Puget Sound, they were still, shockingly, considered by some people to be pretenders to the rock throne. And to understand that perception, we need to do a little time travel back to the band's infancy. Lane Staley and Jerry Cantrell were both kids from Seattle suburbs, and they played in a lot of local bands during their late teens and early 20s. Jerry played in bands like Gypsy Rose and Diamond Lie. Lane played in bands like Sleaze and Alice in Chains. That's Alice N. Chains, like Guns N' Roses. Totally different band. Confusing, huh? Anyway these bands were more influenced by glam metal than the harder-edge sounds that made Alice in Chains so famous. And they matched their style to that music. Mark Yarm wrote Everybody Loves Our Town. It's the definitive book on grunge. And when he was writing it, He spoke to a lot of people who confirmed that early perception of Alice in Chains being sort of grunge posers.
1: I mean, of the big four grunge bands, which are obviously Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, and then Alice in Chains. Alice in Chains was kind of the odd man out. They didn't fit in in that they were. I mean, obviously they they were a hair metal band to begin with. They were very much in the vein of poison and, and things like that. I mean, if you look at old videos of them, you, you know, the, the high Aquanet teased hair, they were very much on the outsiders, so literally from the other side of town. You know, they were playing roller rinks and places like that where, you know, they at least initially, and then, you know, later on, they would go to play the Seattle clubs that the other quote unquote grunge bands would play. But they were, they are and were even though they became integrated i mean you know they were friends with soundgarden and they were friends with pearl jam you know they were they were integrated but separate in a way
0: that theatrical poison adjacent energy stuck with them as the band that would become alice in chains formed and they began playing shows under various names including diamond lie which as you may recall is the name of one of jerry cantrell's old bands Ugh. Will the confusion never end? No. No, it will not. Well, at least not yet, because the band decided they needed a new name, and they chose the name of Lane's old band, which was, you guessed it, Alice in Chains. They changed it to Alice in Chains, a very good choice if you ask me, just before a Halloween show they were playing at Kent Skate King. The night of the show, the band put up this white sheet in front of the stage, and their manager came out and said... Diamond Lie won't be performing tonight, but instead, we have for you Alice in Chains. The band started to play, and the crowd could only see their silhouettes through the sheet for like the first quarter of a song. And then the sheet dropped and revealed the band wearing dresses, like lovely little sundresses. And they had this eight-foot-high glam metal hair with enough hairspray in it to kill an elephant. And right behind them was a backdrop that said, Alice in Chains. So, yeah, the band's outsider status was baked in from their formation. And that's why critics and other bands in the scene gave them a pretty hard time when they shifted their musical and sartorial style towards grunge. Here's Mark Yarm again.
1: Some people in the Seattle community kind of consider them bandwagon jumpers. I think bands change with with the times and and with what's going on around them. They they had a kinship with Mother Love Bone, which was an early grunge band that led to Pearl Jam later, and they kind of fed off each other in a way, both you know, with stylistically with the shorts and the and the Doc Martins and the the, the whole kind of look. So I mean, you know. I guess it could be argued it was bandwagon jumping. It could be argued that it was a natural evolution. I guess I'm sure Allison Chance would probably argue it was a natural evolution, but, uh, you know, people change.
0: The idea that a band can't change or evolve over time is so baffling to me. Music isn't a static thing. It changes and it grows. And, you know, isn't that what we want? It's boring if musicians only do one thing forever. And the Alice in Chains guys in their glam metal phase, it was like musical puberty, you know? In their infancy, in their first bands, they were finding their way. They were developing their style. That's just a necessary part of the process. And by the way, hair metal was everywhere in the late 80s. It just makes sense that they were into it. Grunge didn't even exist yet. So, jeez, give them a break, everybody. Musical purists are exhausting. And I'm not the only one who feels that way. Charlie Benanti from Anthrax agrees with me. So I've got some pretty cool backup here.
3: Alice in Chains came at a time when music was either hair metal or it was aggressive thrash metal. And here comes this band with like those three-part harmonies and stuff. And I think at first people were like, what's this, you know? Once you got a chance to digest it, you fucking loved it. You appreciated it for what it was. It wasn't just heavy metal or thrash or 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 hair band music there were songs and that's the thing about music it's like I always say this to people about oh did you ever check out this band and I'll say I like them but I don't hear a song you know with Alice in Chains the minute I heard them I, you know I, I think the first song I heard was man uh man in the box I'm like that's a fucking hook you know <laughs> uh whether it's Jerry doing the talk talk box thing um it was just it was a hook it 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 had me as soon as i heard it as soon as that song starts off bum 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 you got me
0: box became the first grunge hit song after mtv added it to their buzzbin this select group of music videos that the network deemed the next big thing and that was a really big deal at the time any buzzbin video became instantly successful and man in a box was suddenly everywhere and allison Chain's fan base expanded really quickly and that fan base included a lot of famous faces Bushfront man Gavin Rosdell was fully on board as soon as he heard "Man in a Box."
2: "Man in a Box" was such a massive song at that time. Rock was all about Guns and Roses. It was the sunset sound. It was uh, that kind of LA sunset strip thing. When r first came out the "Sweet Child of Mine," I was like, "Wow, what is this? This is incredible!" But it was, it was, it was more. Um, it's not really my style, you know. It's not necessarily, although they're a brilliant band. So there were other bands after that. I wasn't so enamored with, and it was when I um, heard Man in the Box, it was like, you know, London we were growing up on 4AD and so it was like pixies and throwing muses and things like that. But this Alice Change Chains, that, that, I remember that, that you know, song was like, wow, here's rock music. It was such a great example of what you could do with rock music that wasn't from LA. And so that I found really inspiring.
0: In spite of the success of Facelift and also its follow-up EP, Sap, Alice in Chains was pretty quickly surpassed in album sales and in press coverage by their Seattle contemporaries Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden, but there was no animosity between these bands. They were friends, or at least friendly, even though these grunge bands were producing disparate forms of music, and the term grunge was despised by most of the bands that were thrown under that umbrella, they were part of a community a collection of bands from the same city that were creating a new cultural landscape. Even so, Alice in Chains decided they needed a break from Seattle, a little change of scenery when it came time to record their second album, and they chose a rather ironic destination. The band whose music was seen, at least by Gavin Rossdale, as the antithesis of the Guns N' Roses' Sunset Strip sound, chose to record what would become arguably the hardest of all grunge albums in sunny LA. Although, they arrived in Los Angeles at a time when the city was about to be turned upside down. On the same day the dirt sessions were scheduled to begin, riots broke out across the whole city in response to the acquittal of police officers who'd been recorded beating Rodney King, an unarmed black man. Almost instantly, the city was thrown into utter chaos. Jerry Cantrell was in a store buying beer when someone came in and started looting, On his way back to the studio, he saw people getting pulled out of their cars and beaten. It was really scary. It was a really sobering time, not just for LA, but for the whole country. I can remember watching the riots on TV and just being really scared by it, but also understanding, even though I was really young, where that anger came from. It was this huge reckoning with the legacy of racism in this country, and the whole city came to a standstill. Alice in Chains, understandably, did not want to start recording a new album while the world was crumbling around them, so they decided to head out to Joshua Tree until the temperature of the city lowered. But the riots had set a tone, and it hung over the entire length of the Dirt Sessions. With that incredibly heavy and dark foundation in place, the band spent their next few months recording their heaviest, darkest, and most personal material. A when Dirt was released in September of 1992, it became a huge success instantly. A success that dispelled the myth of Alice in Chains being grunge posers or bandwagon jumpers. Well, mostly dispelled, there are always going to be a few haters who can't be convinced of a band's greatness, right? And they weren't just successful. In fact, the pendulum was going to swing in the opposite direction for them. So instead of being seen as glam rockers in grunge clothing, Alice in Chains were suddenly the darkest of the grunge bands by far. Dirt cemented their legacy as one of the most important grunge bands, but their sound was so different to Pearl Jam or Nirvana this was a deeply personal album full of pain and grief, themes that were present on other grunge albums, but none of them hit the way that Dirt did. Dallas Green considers Dirt one of his favorite albums and biggest musical influences, and he saw Alice in Chains as a band that operated outside of the mainstream grunge sound.
2: Out of like if you if you pick like the four the big bands from that, you know, you, Nirvana, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, and Chains, I think would be the ones, but Chains were always the weird one you know, they were always, uh, they were darker, they were weirder, they came from a different place. And I remember taking shit, I'd taken shit about Alice in Chains forever, you know, because they were like this, if you didn't get it, you didn't get it, you know, and it was because you either got it, and you liked all those uh, weird things about them, or you didn't like them because they were darker, and they were too moody, or they were from this glam scene, or they had like elements of, uh, they were too dramatic, or whatever, they weren't as like, People didn't see them as pure as Nirvana or Pearl Jam or all this other bullshit. And I'm just like, those were all the things that appealed to me. You know, those were the things that sunk their, that's what, that's what, like, that's what hooked me was, was the, the thing that I, the difference that I heard in them than the other bands, you know, those, those elements were always the things that I loved about it. And maybe that's cause like I learned, you know, grew up and learned that I'm a pretty dramatic person and that's why I liked them because they were dramatic, <laughs> you know?
0: This shift into darker territory paid off incredibly well for Alice in Chains. Dirt is widely considered to be the band's magnum opus, and it's been certified Quintuple Platinum. It's sold more than three and a half million copies in the U.S. alone. That is a lot of records. After it came out, they went on tour with Ozzy Osbourne, but it was only when they started a string of headlining dates at the end of 1992 that they got to feel the enormous outpouring of love for Dirt from their legions of fans. The band were embraced by grunge kids, hard rock kids, and metal kids alike, and they finally started to get the universal acclaim they deserved. Their sound was entirely singular. No one else sounded quite like them. But at the same time, they were unimaginably successful. You know, solidly a part of the mainstream. Their greatest success came after a shift towards a heavier sound and darker subject matter, but Alice and Chains would never quite conform to a single musical genre. They were their own thing. Even after producing an album like Dirt, an album that's cited as one of the biggest influences on the dirgy sounds of sludge rock, you can still see glimpses of their musical adolescence playing venues like Kent Skate King in those early glam metal days. Toward the end of their Dirt tour, the band played two of their biggest headlining shows to date in LA, the city where the album was born. They played two sold-out nights at the 4,000-capacity Hollywood Palladium, shows that are considered by a lot of fans to be two of their best ever. I mean, bootleg recordings of those shows, both audio and video, have been passed around over and over again for the last three decades. They are the stuff of legend. And you know how those shows started? The band may not have been wearing dresses, and they certainly didn't have 8-foot-high hairsprayed hair. But that flair for the theatrical, for real showmanship that started with their first shows, it was still there. Those Palladium shows opened with a white curtain in front of the stage. You could only see the band's silhouettes as they started to play "Damn That River." And just as Lane started singing, the curtain dropped, and the entire crowd went wild. episode of the opus we're going to dive into the unique backstory of dirt's composition the musicianship the production those legendary vocal harmonies and we're going to discover why dirt's particular brand of musical alchemy set it so far apart from the grunge scene's other monster hit albums for the consequence podcast network and sony legacy i'm adam unz and this has been the opus
2: Borja Army and fellow music fans, I'm Kayla, and I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode
3: wherever podcasts are found.